Our series is called um, Veterans of Faith. And uh, let me tell you our goal in this series. It's to highlight how endurance and faithfulness in the Christian faith is absolutely essential. You have to learn how to endure and to be faithful. Because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the person who endures to the end will be saved. So God expects this from us. Now, he's not going to leave you on your own to do it. That's the good news. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that the Christian faith is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a marathon. Look what Paul says to young Timothy here. He says, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. So today I want us to look at this whole issue of enduring. And, and we'll touch on the suffering part, but there's a lot more to it. And to use, the, uh, to use one veteran of the faith, we're going to look at Peter. Now, you might think to yourself, well, why are we looking at the Apostle Peter? He's not exactly an example of somebody who was faithful, especially in the crunch time, right? We know the story. What happened with Peter? Well, you remember the scene. It's uh, in the courtyard right outside the high, high priest's house. He's warming his hands by the fire and inside the house, his Lord and Master is being tried for his life. And a servant girl comes up to Peter <coughs> and says, wait a minute, you're one of those Galileans. And Peter vehemently denies it. And then he goes to the entranceway and another servant girl sees him and she goes, no, wait a minute, yes, you are one of them. And again, he denies it. And then finally, someone in the crowd shouts out to Peter, surely, you are one of them because you're a Galilean. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, I recognize your accent. All of us in America, <clears throat> we know what that's about. Excuse me. We know that if you're from the South, you have an accent. You're from the East Coast, you have an accent. From Midwest, you have an accent. Every time I go back to New Jersey, and um, I, it's, it's happened to me in ways I don't even realize. I go back to New Jersey, and I'll say something like, you know, God is really doing, and they go, wait, wait, wait a minute, God? Where'd that come from? It's God, it's not Gad. What's, how are you talking out there? It's happening, I'm becoming a Midwesterner. But, but that's what's, oh, stop. Stop. But uh, that's, what, that's what's going on here. He's saying, your, your accent's giving your way. This is a Galilean. And uh, what does Peter do? You remember, he curses. He denies that he even knows Jesus. And as soon as he does that, the cock crows. And he remembers the words of our Lord. Before that cock crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. And in Mark chapter 14, it says, Peter broke down and wept. The apostle failed. He failed, especially when the pressure was on. He wasn't faithful. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. 30 years later, different circumstances. Although now, Jesus is not the one who's on trial. Christians are on trial. Where? Before the Roman government. All, all over the Roman Empire, 
persecution is breaking out. It begins in Asia Minor, in Turkey, but then it begins to spread all over the empire. Christians are being arrested, they're being imprisoned, they're being martyred, they're being thrown to lions, they're, be, they're human torches for the emperor. He blames them for everything. And those who are thinking Christians know, these are not just isolated incidents. This is the beginning of a great wave of persecution on the church. Who's gonna encourage those Christians? Who's gonna call them to be faithful and endure? It's very interesting to me that God chooses Peter to do it. Yeah, he uses Peter to give that word of encouragement to the church. This fisherman who Jesus called a rock, no rock, he was more like a bowl of jello. He fails. He fails his Lord in the time of pressure. But God says, I'm gonna use Peter to call these Christians to endure, to stand firm, even in tough circumstances. So I wanna look at the epistle he writes on this, his first, his first letter, because it talks about three areas of faithfulness, of enduring for us. The first area of faithfulness, it says, stand firm in your hope of heaven. Your hope of heaven. Here's the verse, 1 Peter chapter 1. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Park right there. Sometimes I hear people saying, Pastor, this born again thing, this must be a recent thing. No, it's in the Bible. Not recent. In fact, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't even see heaven. That's why when, when I first started reading the Bible at 24 years old, I came from a Catholic background, we never talked about being born again or anything. I'm reading, I, I see Jesus' words. Unless you're born again, you can't even see heaven. And I thought to myself, I don't know what born again is, but whatever it is, I better become born again. Because if I don't become born again, I can't even see heaven. Listen, when you hear people say, well, they're a born-again Christian, as if there are other Christians who are not born again. Listen, the Bible knows of no other Christian. Born-again Christian is kind of redundant. It's saying, I'm a Christian Christian. It's the only kind of Christian the New Testament is aware of. And that's what Peter's saying here. That we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, we live with great expectation. Excuse me, and, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. And even though you must endure, there's the word, many trials for a little while. So here's a picture. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, you may have to go through some tough times on this side of glory, but you, what you need to be considering and keep your eyes on is the hope of heaven. Now notice what he says to people who are born again. You are promised what's called an inheritance. Most of you know what an inheritance is, but the word that's used there in the New Testament, the Greek word for inheritance was very familiar to the Jew. It was, a Jew, it was a word that Jewish people would understand because it was the same word that's used in the Old Testament for a portion of land. You remember that when God spoke to Abraham, he said, I'm gonna give you a land of Canaan and your descendants forever and ever. And when the Jews went into the uh, promised land under uh, Charlton Heston, 
No, under Moses. When they went into the promised land, um, each of them was given, each tribe was given land, and then each family was given a portion of land. Same word. So Peter is saying, just as God promised you an earthly inheritance of the promised land, there's also a spiritual inheritance, some sort of home that you're going to have in heaven. Jesus talked to his disciples about it, John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, would I have, not, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I'll come, I'll get you so that you'll be always with me where I am. Now, that's a modern translation, NLT. The, the King James Version says, in my father's house are many mansions. I like that one better. I'll take a mansion any day of the week. Pastor, what exactly does that mean? What's it gonna look like? What are, what are we, we don't know. What we do know is what heaven will be like. And there's lots of verses on what heaven's like. Psalm 16, for example, says, in your presence is, I love this word, fullness of joy. Not just joy, but fullness of joy. Anything you can think that could bring you joy is just scratching the surface. Fullness of joy in God's presence. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Wow, think about that. Do you believe that? At God's right hand in heaven are pleasures forevermore. God has been preparing this place for a long, long time. Look at Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. God has been preparing this place for you for a long, long time. It's gonna be incredibly beautiful. We don't have time about it if you come out to my uh, Revelation study that I teach every two years, we go through in Revelation uh, 21 particularly, where it describes exactly what heaven will be like, streets of gold, a lot of things. Look at this, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. You know, everything we experience in this life, we're to manage this earth, we're to be uh, we're good stewards of it, but one day it's all gonna burn, all of it. God's gonna start clean slate, new heaven, new earth. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. There's gonna be a city, a Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, a city that's prepared for us. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, come with me. I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's us. And he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me this holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. Wow. Heaven is an undescribable, unimaginable, it's, it's beyond description. That's how beautiful heaven's gonna be. And by the way, pause button, you do realize that this life on earth is a practice run for heaven, for Christians. What are you gonna be doing in heaven? You're gonna be loving God in heaven. What's he want you to do now? Love him. What are we gonna do in heaven? We're gonna be loving each other. What's he want you to do right now? Love each other. We're gonna be serving God in heaven. What's he want us to do right now? Serve him. We're gonna get, get to know God even more and more in heaven. What's he want us to do now? Get to know him. We're gonna be worshiping God in heaven. What's, what are we supposed to be doing now? Worshiping him. We're gonna enjoy God in heaven. What are we supposed to be doing now? Enjoying him. It's all practice run except one thing. One thing the church does, 
that we're not going to do in heaven anymore. Won't be in heaven. We won't do this. Won't evangelize. Won't be sharing our faith. Why? There's no second chance. When a person takes their last breath, that's it. Hebrews 9.27 says this. Listen, it's appointed. You don't leave this earth a second earlier or a second later than your appointed time. The psalmist says we're given so many days. He marks out our days before one of them comes to be. We don't know what it is. We all are shocked when we hear a Kobe Bryant and his daughter and tragically those people dying in the helicopter crash. But, you know, we all get a certain amount of days. We don't know what, we don't know what it is. It says, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed for everyone to die once. Listen, and then face judgment. In other words, there's no second chance. You go right to the, the, th the throne of judgment afterwards. There, there may be some time there, yes, between death and the, the great white throne judgment, but there's no other chance you're giving. There's not a second chance. That's what 927 is trying to tell us. You have to make your decision for Christ. You have to take God's lifeboat to be saved on this side of glory. There's no chance once you take your last breath. That's why, by the way, Jesus said the day of salvation is today. Do not mess around with this decision about your eternity. You and I live, what, who knows how many days, right? But we may live, I think life expectancy now is in the 70s. But that's a blip on the screen compared to eternity. And Jesus said, make your decision today. Don't be a fool. You don't know what happens tomorrow. So what are we supposed to do about all of this? We're supposed to be good stewards of the time to make the most of every opportunity. Look, here it is. Ephesians chapter 5. Find out what pleases the Lord. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. The same thing. He's saying, understand what God wants from you today, what he requires from you, and get at it. Because what we hope for then, what we need to get nailed up, nailed down is heaven. And I just had somebody in the last service come up to me and said, Pastor, I'm, I'm afraid. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid that we're, we're going to sin, right? Yes, we're going to sin until we go to glory. What if I sin and then I die? And I'm not ready to meet God. I said, <laughs> I said that's what the good news, gospel means good news. That's what the good news is all about. God is saying, if you trust, salvation is by faith, not by works. You don't do things to work off your sins so that you can be in heaven. Maybe you were taught that, but that's just not what the, the Bible says. It's by faith you're saved. Faith in what? Faith in what Jesus has done for you, I told him. When, when Jesus dies on that cross, I told him, he dies for all the sins you did commit in the past, the ones you're going to commit today, and the ones you're going to commit in the future. So say two days from now, you do mess up, and you die. Well, if you've not taken the lifeboat, if you've not accepted what Jesus did by faith, you apply it to yourself. I said, before the day ends, you have got to say a prayer to God and say, God, I receive by faith what you did for me personally for my sins, past, present, future. I receive that by faith. I believe it. I'm not going to think I have to pay for those sins anymore. 
You already paid for all of them. And I'm going to follow you as Lord. In other words, you're going to be number one in my life. You do those two things. You believe and surrender your life to Jesus. Here's what happens, I tell him. God records your name in heaven. You're put in what's, what the Bible says is the book of life as already in. Already in. And if you mess up, it doesn't matter because you know, even if God were to ask you, what about that? Well, Jesus, I trusted that your death covers all of my sins and I'm resting by faith in what you have done for me. Enter into my kingdom. And you could see, as I'm telling them this, like, is that, is, is that real? Yes. Yes. I didn't even want to rob him of that moment of, of that sweet surrender because people hear noise. I said, go home, tell Jesus, you receive that by faith personally for your own life and you're not going to worry about it anymore. And you could just see, you could just see the excitement in his eyes. So you want to stand firm in your salvation, which gives you the, where, where's your focus on this life? No, your inheritance in heaven, the hope of heaven. Number two, stand firm in your suffering. Now this is where it gets to our real life here today. First Peter chapter four, let's look at it. Dear friends, don't be surprised don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you'll have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed in, in the, to all the world. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests on you. What's he saying there? What's Peter saying? He's saying, listen, he's talking to Christians who are being persecuted. And he's saying, stand firm, endure those sufferings because they're all part of a plan. You know, if you, once you give your life to God and he takes control, listen, if you experience some suffering in your life, it's not come to you by accident. God in his sovereignty, at the very least, chose to include it in the plan. He may not be the author of it, but he may say, we're gonna, put, we're gonna keep that in the plan. So don't be shocked if you have suffered. You know, you, you should be in my office sometime. People come in and, and they'll say, uh, Pastor, I don't know. I don't understand God. Why? I, I'm experiencing suffering in my life. I'm experiencing some difficulty. And I'm thinking, well, who the heck promised you that you wouldn't experience suffering? Or trial or maybe even tragedy. Who promised you that? I didn't promise you that. No preacher from this church promised you. Maybe some guy in a white coat on TV who's asking for $39.95 every time he preaches told you that. But that's not what we preach here. Jesus said, you're gonna suffer in this life. We're part of a fallen world, this ain't, this ain't heaven. So who told you that? But they go, I, I, where's God, where's God? He's still here. You see, we all respond to suffering differently. There are some people who have this unbelievable toughness, and you know some of them. They experience suffering and what do they do? They bite their lip. They keep their eyes on the road and they say, I don't care what life throws at me, I can beat it. So they don't even have to trust in God. They don't have to be even, a, they could be an atheist and say that. Uh, it's admirable, it's much better than, I guess, whining and complaining and quitting. But that's not Christian hope. That is not Christian hope. 
Other people, when they suffer, what do they do? They think they've done something wrong. God must be punishing me. Look, that doesn't even make sense to me, and I'll tell you why. If you really believe the gospel, when Jesus dies on that cross, what sins do we, does he pay for? The sins of the world. Past, present, future sins. As it says in Hebrews, one sacrifice to cover all sins for all time. So he, he, his, he pays the penalty for all the sins. So if, if you're saying, God, uh, I must be going through some difficulty and it must be God punishing me. Now, wait a minute. Why would he punish you and have you pay the penalty that he's already paid for? It's like double jeopardy. You can't do it. So it doesn't make sense. But some people go through life and when they suffer, they go, God must be punishing me. Other people suffer with lots and lots of worry and they don't even think God cares. None of those responses is Christian hope. Let me describe for you Christian hope. Christian hope in suffering looks like this. It's looking at God's perspective, looking from God's perspective at my life so that the picture is large enough to include everything happen to me, happening to me, including my suffering. So you have a picture of life that's large enough to include everything, including suffering, and saying, I believe that because God's involved in my life, he's in control in my life, yes, even my suffering somehow is working out according to God's good purposes for me. That is Christian hope. It's got meaning. It just is not just happening to me. God is allowing it to happen to me and there's some sort of purpose in it. Listen, I'm not saying you stop praying for healing. Yes, continue to pray for healing. I'm not saying you don't ask God to deliver you out of that suffering. Of course, read the Psalms. They're all about, Lord, please take this away from me. But it's trusting that whatever happens and whatever I experience in life, a sovereign and good God is with me. He's ordaining every part of my future and I trust him and I'm gonna rest in his good purposes for me. That is Christian hope. Well, pastor, what could some of those purposes be? What could those purposes look like? Well, there are many described in scripture. Let me describe six purposes that just might be a purpose in your suffering right now. I don't know for sure, but let me describe six ways God uses suffering. First, he uses suffering to advance the gospel, to advance the gospel. Philippians chapter one. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters I become, have become confident in the Lord and, and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Let me tell you what's happening here. This is the Apostle Paul. Where is he? He's in prison. Not just for a day, not just for a couple of weeks or months. We're talking years. He's in prison, a Roman prison. They're not nice places. But he's saying, even though I'm suffering, I'm, I'm watching God use it for the advancement of the gospel. There's Roman guards around me. They're hearing the gospel from me. Some of them are coming to Christ. 
other Christians are seeing what I'm going through and they're being encouraged to be more bold in how they share their faith. God uses suffering sometimes to advance the gospel. Number two, God uses suffering to bring some people to actual salvation for them to commit their lives to God. Second Corinthians chapter seven, godly sorrow can bring what? Repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Sometimes God uses suffering to bring people to where they bow the knee and give their lives to Christ. Third, God uses suffering to build endurance in believers, right? I remember my first boss, I worked in New York City um, for a company that's not even around today called Home Insurance Company. My first boss, great guy, was, uh, he said to me, uh, let me tell you why I'm in the insurance business. He says, my father went through the depression, suffered. And uh, I, I'm in the insurance business because even during the depression, insurance companies were hiring. You always need insurance. So he said, I wanted a really safe and secure industry because I saw what my father went through. But uh, he said, when my father talked about the, the depression, he talked about it with pride, like it was a badge. Why? Because that's what suffering does sometimes. It strengthens us, makes us endure. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter five. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop what? Endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and ca character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Number four, God uses suffering to equip us to comfort other people. He uses the, the, the comfort we get in suffering so that we can comfort other people. Sometimes, you know, God will send you people and you can speak with authority into their lives more than me or anybody else because you've gone through it. Second Corinthians chapter one. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we'll be able to give them the same comfort God has given us for the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. So God uses suffering to equip us to comfort others. others. Number five, God uses suffering to show that God is at work in somebody's life. God kind of raves a flag sometimes through suffering. I'm at work here. Look at what Jesus says in John 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why is this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. But probably, number six, probably one of the most profound and powerful purposes of suffering. This is how God uses suffering in many people's lives is to reduce the power of sin. Reduce the power of sin. Here's the verse. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. So then since Christ suffered in physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had and be ready to suffer too. If you have suffered physically for Christ, you are finished with sin. I'll unpack that for you in a moment. You won't spend the rest of your lives by chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. Here's what it's saying. When it says you are finished with sin, it does not mean that you won't be tempted. It does not mean that you won't sin again. What God is saying is this. When a person, when a believer realizes that suffering is in my future, hard times are ahead, and they look at those trials through a heart of faith, and they say, I will follow God no matter what this means. 
even if he wants me to suffer for his purposes. When a person does that, they rob sin of its power in their life. What seducement, yeah. What seducement, listen, what seducement can the devil ever bring against you if you have already decided, I may suffer. I may even die. I will never forsake him. All the inducements of the enemy, all the temptations of the enemy are robbed by the frame of mind that says, I don't care how much I suffer. I'm going to be faithful to the very end. Now, listen, conversely, conversely, the person who says, oh, I'll serve God. I'll believe in God. I'll trust God as long as I don't suffer. Then I'm wondering, why, where are you, God? That person, you throw the door wide open to all the seducements of the enemy. That kind of Christian, frankly, is a pushover for Satan. Well, I'll trust God as long as he fits my requirements. Peter says, stand firm in your suffering. Stand firm in your faith. The faith that says what I'm going through has meaning. It has meaning. And though I may not understand it completely, God is going to bring spiritual profit to my life through it. My suffering is not in vain. And someday, someday, the suffering I'm going through, I will see was really all worthwhile when I get to see it totally from God's perspective. One of the great, one of the great, one of the great books on this, by the way, is a book by C.S. Lewis. This is really a good book. Uh, many of you have read it called The Screwtape Letters. It's one of my favorite books. It's, of course, it's fiction, but it's, it's, um, it's, the it's, it's a book about a senior devil training a junior devil on the art of temptation. Screwtape is the older devil. Wormwood is the younger devil. And they have one passage, one passage in the book where they talk about when those, they call them creatures, when those Christians go through low times or suffering, let me read it to you. It is during such low periods, much more than during the peak periods, when this creature is growing into the sort of person the enemy, that's God, wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in this state of dryness are those which please him best. And only if the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than one of these creatures no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks, abroad, uh, uh, looks around a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and yet he still believes and obeys. Stand firm in your hope of heaven. Stand firm in your sufferings. Number three, stand firm in your love for one another. Here's the verse, 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult for insult. On the, on the contrary, repay evil with a blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. 
For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Let me unpack that for you. First of all, when Peter says above all in the Greek language there, it means to sum it all up. In other words, he's saying this is it. This is priority number one. Let me tell you what it is. Love each other. Why? He says, because if you love each other, you're going to cover a multitude of sins. What's that about, Pastor? My loving another person who's offended me or hurt me, that covers their sin? Well, not in the, not in the way of paying for the sin. The only covering or payment for sin is Christ's blood. We know that. But the Greek word for love there in that verse is agape. Now, when the Bible talks about love, it uses four, in the New Testament, uses four Greek words. The first one is philio, philio, Philadelphia, friendship love. Second, eros, where we get the word erotic, sexual love. Third, storge, a natural affection, kind of an appreciation type of love. You say, I love the Green Bay Packers. I love lasagna. I love my car. Storge. Fourth, agape. Now listen, there's only one place in the entire universe you can find agape love, and that's in God himself. It's God's kind of love. And how do we know what agape love is? It tells us in the Bible, 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is. Agape love, same word. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we, listen, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let me tell you what it's saying. When Jesus dies on that cross and loves us, he takes the hit, right? He doesn't expect you to pay for your sin. So I'm going to take the hit. I'm going to love them in a way. I'll take the hit. I'm not going to expect you to pay for what you have done to me, to God. I'll take the hit. When Christians forgive each other in Jesus' way, they're taking the hit. I'm not going to expect that person to pay for what they did to me. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying what they did to you wasn't a wrong. It was a wrong. But your, your response is, I'm not going to make them pay. I'm going to love them back. Pastor, now wait a minute. That's a, kind of a doormat theology. You don't want to do that. I'm not saying put yourself into an abusive situation. I'm saying that the Christian who does this, you know what? They did to me was really bad. I, will, I cannot and will never forgive them. And then they turn around and they say, oh, by the way, Jesus, thank you so much for giving me for all the ways, even countless ways, even tomorrow I'm going to offend you. And, and you take the hit. You take the hit for all that. I will not forgive you. Thank you, Jesus, for all you're doing for me. That is a denial of the grace of God in your life. I don't understand that. I don't understand how a person can say, thank you for all the way you take the hit for me. I will not forgive you. And that's what Peter is saying here. It happens all the time in this church. Let me tell you something. It happens all the time. People not taking revenge 
people forgiving covering the sin look how Peter ends his letter in chapter 5 humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time cast not just some all of your anxiety cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you make you strong firm steadfast those are promises folks four promises God gives you when you suffer number one eventually he's going to restore you he's going to make you strong firm and steadfast let me translate that for you basically God is saying you will endure because I'm involved in your life because I live in you because I'm the captain of your soul uh, you will endure that's the good news I'm in the trenches with you and I'll make sure you come out the other side completing Christ let me close with this verse Romans 8 in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness we don't know how we ought to pray but the Spirit himself God himself inside of us intercedes for us through wordless groans who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword no in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us for I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor death nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord, we get it. You couldn't have made it more clear this morning. You love us. You know everything. You got every hair on our heads counted. We don't suffer unless it's by somehow the allowance of your sovereign plan for us. And we know that we, we know you're there, but more than that, you're going to be in the middle of that suffering with us. You're with us. And you make us great promises. You'll bring us out the other side. We will endure. We will be strengthened. Thank you so much for the great promises of your word. Help us to live in these promises, God. And for the person who came here today that is suffering and not yet crossed the line, not yet trusted you for all things, to, for their very life, I pray that this day will not end before the hound of heaven pursues them and brings them to a place of sweet surrender. To simply say to God, Lord, I... I it's like I'm the only person in this room. You have opened me up today. You have shown me 
what the truth is. I'm done trying to fix my life. I'm done trying to fix my life. I surrender my life to you. Take it all. I don't know exactly all that what means, all that that means, but I want to be yours. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for paying for all of my stuff. And from this moment on, my faith is going to be in you and you alone. Show me who you are. Show me your plan for my life. And I'll trust you. I'll only live in a 24-hour period. You said, Jesus, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worry of its own. Live in a 24-hour period. So, Lord, I'm going to get up, and I'm just going to trust you for every 24-hour period. I'm yours from this moment on. Make me into the kind of person that I really want to be, that you've always destined me to be. I pray, Lord, that you'll make me into that kind of person little by little by little. God, I know anybody who prays a prayer like that, you would never brush aside, but you'll do exactly what they're asking and come into their heart and their lives for their, to be their Lord and Savior. Now to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you one day before his glorious presence without any fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. And God's people said, Amen.